Well, good morning to uh, everyone who's here this morning. Um, if you have your Bibles with you, you can open them up to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Those of you who are joining us online this morning, which, uh, like Daniel said, looks like the majority of you, you can do likewise and open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 20, uh, 27. Sorry, If I said 24, you're wondering why we were going back in time. Matthew chapter 27, and uh, we'll be going to verses 1 and 2, and then to verses 11 through 14. (laughs) Got company. (laughs) Just take him upstairs, he'll be okay. There. I know. It's okay, Bobo. It's okay, Boaz. I know. Sorry, Amy. No, uh, Matthew 27, verses 1 and 12, and then we'll be in verses 11 through 14. And this is uh, the passage about Jesus' trial before Pilate which is uh, broken in half by the account of the end of Judas. Uh, But the focus here is back on the Lord. So having been condemned by the Sanhedrin in in a mockery of a trial, the Sanhedrin brings Jesus to Pilate, to the Roman authorities. And if you've ever wondered why they take Jesus to Pilate, why they have to involve the Roman governor... It's because only the Romans had the authority to put a man to death. So the the Sanhedrin is making their intentions perfectly clear. They are taking the Lord to be tried by Pilate so that they can sentence him to death on the cross. The cross, which was an instrument of execution reserved for rebels and insurrectionists and anyone who would defy the authority of Caesar in Rome. So this morning I want to give us the sense of the passage and then narrow in specifically on one point. Narrow in specifically on one point. And the passage is Matthew 27, 1 and 2, and then 11 through 14. So, when morning came... All of the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death, which is a quote, if you're unaware, from Psalm chapter 2. And they bound him and they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Now, verse 11, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom as we search your word. 
that you would help us to see what you would have us to understand and to learn and to do from this passage. Lord, that we would know what it means to suffer unjustly as believers, as you have called us to do. I pray that you would help me to preach, that you would help us all to hear. I pray that you would be with those who are joining us and can't be here this morning. I pray that, uh, th- that they would get well. And I pray that you would keep distractions from them. There are so many things even here and in our own minds that can be distracting. How much more when you're in your own home that can draw your attention this way or that. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us all to focus, to pay attention to what your word would have for us today. It's in Jesus' name we ask, and in your name we pray. Amen. Well, this is Jesus before the Roman governor Pilate. And since we won't talk about Pilate again, I'm going to talk about him briefly here. You see, often when we read about Pilate in the Gospels, we see a man who appears uh, to be making a desperate attempt to prevent the Lord's crucifixion. We even see what looks like what could be called faith or belief, right? Pilate will not budge. No, Jesus is the king of the Jews. They ask him to change. He says, I have written what I have written. And we see that and we can almost pity him. We wonder, what's going on with Pilate? He seems like he's, he's at least understanding something about Jesus, doesn't want to put him to death. What's going on? Well, any, any, any individual familiar with Pilate with the man, they would have understood that he is doing nothing deserving of pity. His title in Rome was prefect or procurator, and he was the fifth of these in the region of Judah, and he was appointed by and directly answerable to the emperor Tiberius. So he's a high position. And he was sent here because Judea had a particularly unruly reputation and they were known to be a, a defiant and a fighty people. And so his job was to maintain the peace. And Pilate, from every account that we have, hated and despised the Jewish people. He looked at them with nothing but disdain. Many accounts in history uh, prove this. For example, in one instance, he was building an aqueduct to bring water from the mountains into the city of Jerusalem. And uh, in order to fund it, he raided the temple treasury. When the people rioted and came demanding that he repay the funds, he had his soldiers uh, disguise themselves as commoners, go out amongst the crowd, and then at his signal, they began to beat them mercilessly. In Luke's Gospel, we're told of a time where a group of worshipers were in the middle of offering their sacrifices and Pilate, uh, apparently on a whim, had them killed so suddenly and so violently that their blood mingled with the blood of their sacrifices. At another time, there was a a large group of, of fanatics following a false messiah. And they weren't going to fight Rome, but they were marching up to Mount Gerizim because their leader had told them, up here on Mount Gerizim, there's relics and vessels that were used by Moses and and we're going to go and get them. And then when they got to the foot of Mount Gerizim, Pilate ordered uh, a detachment of cavalry to attack them and kill them all. His worst provocation, which might surprise you, 
was he set up embossed shields throughout Jerusalem that bore the image of Emperor Tiberius on them. And they were set up for the express purpose of emperor worship. It was to show the people that not only did Tiberius rule them, but in effect, he was their God. That's what these shields symbolized. And when he set them up, it inspired the people to revolt, and Pilate threatened to kill them all, and he relented only when they assured him they would rather die than be defiled. This was too much, however, and Pilate was severely rebuked and ordered to remove the shields by the emperor himself. Now, this happened shortly before the crucifixion and may explain why Pilate didn't resort to his usual cruelties. He was already in hot water. A few years after the crucifixion, after the condemning of Christ, if you wonder what happened to Pilate, he was removed from his post by Tiberius for uh, failing, right? So he's removed from his post. He's on his way to Rome to answer for his failures. Tiberius dies while he's on the way, and now he is left, Pilate, left with nowhere to go, no one to hear his case. Uh, he's, he's a criminal without, a, without hope at this point, and Eusebius tells us that he falls on his own sword and he dies. All this to say that Pilate was a foolish, a cruel, and an expedient man. He's not an unsung hero. All of his effort in the gospel to spare Christ, if, teach, if history teaches us anything, it was motivated only by a desire to infuriate the Jews. He looked at Jesus as a, as a political tool he could use to bludgeon his enemies. And the Jews knew this. And the Jews knew that Pilate would do them no favors for favor's sake. So when they bring Jesus, they come with accusations of sedition and rebellion and insurrection. This is what Jesus is accused of. And that is what the emperor is afraid of. So Pilate asks him the question, Are you the king of the Jews? Now you remember, this is 2,000 years ago. Roman law is very different from the law that you and I have enjoyed. In Roman law, to remain silent was to admit guilt. It's not like our day where what will condemn you or clear you is whether or not you actually committed a crime. In the ancient world, though there was, a, there was some concern for justice, by and large, what ultimately would clear you or convict you was your own ability to defend yourself. The defendant was responsible for his defense, and lawyers were prohibitively expensive. This is why, by the way, the Bible says, Jesus tells his disciples, when you find yourself in court, don't worry about what to say because it will be given to you at the time. And in a very real and literal way, the Spirit is our advocate or our attorney. This would have had a special importance to those early believers who found themselves often having to give a defense. But here, Pilate is pushing Jesus to answer. Are you the king of the Jews or are you not? And Jesus does answer. He tells Pilate, you have said so, which is not an evasion, though it sounds like it could be when it's translated. It's more like Jesus is telling him, you've got it correct. You have it right. You have said so. You've, you've said it yourself. You know that I'm the king of the Jews. 
And this begins an avalanche of accusations from the Jews. And from here on out, Jesus answers none of them. Right? Pilate knows what's going on. Pilate knows the Jews despise him, Pilate. He does not believe for a single second their accusations. He knows what is going on is ridiculous. It's a sham. It's a farce, right? The chief priests and the elders are acting now like they're the great servants of Rome. They've, they've brought forward a, a captured revolutionary, right? Someone claiming to be king. They're telling the governor, we love Caesar and we love Caesar so much that, that we've captured this man and we're handing him over to you. Hail Rome is what the chief priests and the Sadducees are, are doing. Pilate knows this is a lie. He knows it immediately. And the Bible tells us that he perceived. So they come forward, bring their accusations. Pilate knows the only reason that they're doing this is because they were jealous. And so he expects it to be easy. Jesus gives a defense, defends himself easily, says, oh, I'm no revolutionary. Pilate agrees, humiliates the Jews. No one dies. It's a good day. That's not what happens. Jesus does not act like any other man accused of rebellion that Pilate has ever seen. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't attack his accusers. He doesn't flatter and plead. He doesn't try to get justice to win his life. No, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter and a sheep before its shearers at his silence, so he opened not his mouth. And Pilate is amazed. And it's not the wisdom of Christ that amazes Pilate. It's not the words of Christ that amazes Pilate. It isn't Jesus' defense that causes Pilate to marvel. It is Jesus' quietness. He is serene and dignified throughout it all. And this morning, I would like to narrow in on that one place. So the rest of our time, one topic. Jesus silent and suffering before his accusers. And the reason I'm zeroing in here is because this is where Peter zeroes in in his epistles. This is where Peter goes when he thinks of the suffering of Christ. It's right here during this trial, and he says that Jesus did this as an example for us to follow, which is especially important for us in our own time because everything you see happening with, uh, with the COVID restrictions and the language coming from the leaders of the country, what you will notice right away is uh, no matter what you think about uh, the pandemic, everything said could be used against any group of people in the country that the government deems to have unacceptable views. And if you're a Christian, you understand that you are light in a world that hates light and you ought to be concerned and not naive about these things. Now, human beings, this is regardless of whether they're Christians or not, they have an inherent aversion to suffering. We don't enjoy it. 
Now, biologists or anthropologists might explain this by saying, well, the, the aversion to suffering, it just evolved as a, as a survival mechanism. And those who are averse to suffering avoided it and they survived. And those who were, who were, who were not, well, they endured it and they died. And that's what they might say. And it sounds reasonable, but as Christians, we know better. See, we were made in God's image. And God made human beings to inhabit a perfect world. He made us to inhabit a perfect world in which there would be no suffering ever. In the Garden of Eden, perfect all the time. A world without pain. That's what you and I were designed for. And so an aversion to suffering is not just a survival mechanism. Human beings universally avoid suffering not because it's painful, but just because it's painful, but because we were not made to have to endure it. In a way, suffering is contrary to what it means to be human. Suffering is out of sync with the way God designed and created the world to be. It's a result of living in a fallen world. Suffering is not natural. Death is not natural. Pain is, is not natural. Sickness is not natural. And so we make every effort to avoid it. We have a natural bend away from these things that are contrary to our nature. Which is why in the Gospels, one of the things you see repeatedly and in the New Testament is if you can escape suffering, escape suffering. Right? Jesus says if they persecute you in one town, he doesn't say dig your feet in and endure it. He says flee to the next. Paul says if you're a servant under a, a, a slave, under a wicked master, serve him well. But if you have the opportunity to get your freedom, take it. You see these things in Scripture. Why? Because the Bible understands that believers, people in general, were not made to endure this. However, however, this is a big however, in a fallen world, as Christians, as light in darkness, it is inevitable. It's impossible that Christians will not suffer Many things. Many things in this world. And this is the biblical uh, testimony. If you are a Christian, you will suffer. You know, there are some entire theologies that come up that try to erase this entirely or explain it away. Um, there's absolute heresies like, uh, like at the prosperity gospel, which preaches all suffering is from the devil and all suffering is a sign of weak faith. Or there is a common idea that suffering is on account of sin, personal suffering and personal sin. And, and the idea is if we strive for greater righteousness, we can avoid the difficulties of this life. Or there is an idea very wide and believed by many, an idea that if the church is faithful and if the church does everything correctly according to the Word of God and if the church strives to be like Christ, then the kingdom will advance and then the forces of darkness will be dispelled and everything will be well again. 
If the church focuses on these things, we will be well. It will be good. Well, many believers think this. How many times have you heard this, that, that the reason the church is in disarray and the reason the governments are hostile and the reason public opinion has turned against the church and the reason that Christians are now going to, to suffer and see a, a downturn in the world around them, the reason is because the church has failed to seek the kingdom and live righteously and be like Jesus. But if we were just more like Christ, if we prayed more and we loved more and we gave more and we were more faithful than all of these things, if we did them, our trials would disappear. Brothers and sisters, this is not true. This is not true, but is a lie. Now maybe you think last week, well, you said it was. No, I said it was what might or May It has the potential to turn the nation around. If we are faithful, if we, if we are not faithful, if we are not striving, then no, nothing will ever change. But if we are, it's the only hope that we have for our nation. You can think of it like this. Think of it as a, as a parent faithfully raising a child. Does it guarantee the child is going to grow up and follow Christ and be a Christian? Absolutely not. But it is a better way. But when it comes to suffering, the Bible is clear. What it means to be a Christian is to suffer. Because the more we become like Jesus Christ, apart from the supernatural intervention of God giving light to those who see us, we will invite their anger and their hatred. People, Jesus tells us in John 3, hate light and love darkness. You say it another way. The more that we become like Jesus, the more we will be treated like Jesus. And he was mocked and beaten and treated with injustice and crucified. So the more we are faithful, the more we will suffer like Jesus suffered. And not only is this a reality, as in a possibility, it is part and parcel, inseparable from what it means to be a Christian. Because Christ suffered and learned obedience through suffering, then so will we. And so I want to take the time, because this is so ingrained in believers that suffering is somehow something that is easily avoidable. Or something that is, happens because or in response to our faithful walk. I just want to go through a number of verses so you can see them and brace yourself understanding what it means to suffer as a follower of Christ. Just to cement it in your minds that it is unavoidable for a Christian. And the obvious passage to go to first is 1 Peter 2, 19 and 24 because it's Peter's interpretation of what we just read in Matthew's Gospel. And we're going to go to a lot of verses in the next 20 or so minutes, so you won't be able to turn to all of them, but listen, and if you do want them, then ask me afterward, I'll give you the list. But 1 Peter 2, 19 through 24, it's Peter, he's telling us about what we just read in Matthew's Gospel, how this applies to us. He says, for this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures suffering, sorrows, while suffering unjustly. 
What credit is it if when you are sin and you beaten for it, you endure? But if you do what is good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. One of the callings on the Christian is to endure sorrow and suffer unjustly. You want to be a Christian? You will suffer injustice. Why have we been called to this? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. And you say, yeah, but if we just do everything right, we'll avoid it. No, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. Perfect. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to the One who judges justly. Did you know that when you suffer injustice graciously, you are behaving like Christ? And did you know that Christ left you His example of suffering so that you could follow in His footsteps? And when was the last time you encountered a trial in your life and you said, okay, there's a difficulty here, trial's coming, I am going to face this trial like Jesus faced His. And instead of reviling or threatening, you entrusted yourself and your vindication and your deliverance to the Lord God who will judge justly. It's a gracious thing in His sight. You know why it's a gracious thing in His sight? Because this is what your quiet suffering says to the world around you. It says, I'm not looking for my help here. Right? It shows the world that your salvation is not of this world and your hope is not in this world and your help is not from this world and your justice is not coming out of this world. That's why it's a gracious thing in the sight of God when we suffer injustice patiently like Jesus did. It glorifies God because it tells the world that God is our hope. We have no hope here. Or Philippians 1, 28 and 29. So Paul is encouraging the church to unity and he continues, and, and not be frightened by anything in your opponents. Don't be afraid of your opponents. Why? This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. When the opponents of Christianity threaten you, you don't be afraid. And when you're not afraid, it's a sign to them that you will live and they will die. That you are saved and they are lost. That you will be raised to life, that they will be destroyed. That's what the Bible says your courage in suffering communicates and why God is glorified in it. It shows them, I'm, I'm not, I, I don't need justice here. Because I'm going to get justice in eternity forever, so I don't need to be afraid. I don't need to tremble as though justice will not be served. Justice will be served. And I will be vindicated. And you're going to have to answer for this. It says to our opponents. Verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Do you see that? It has been granted to you, given to you from he a heaven, from God, like a gift. Not just faith 
and belief that leads to a knowledge of Christ, but suffering for His sake. God holds out both hands to every believer, and in one hand, faith and salvation, and in the other one, suffering granted to you, given to you. You can't have one without the other. Or, Jesus says to His disciples, if anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. Matthew 16, 24. The cross on the back. This is anyone who wants to follow Me, Jesus says, you're now on death row. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, if they call Jesus the perfect one a devil, how much more will they malign those of His household? Matthew 10, 21. Brother will deliver brother up to death and father his child. Children will rise against parents and have them put to death and they will be hated by all for My name's sake. When you became a Christian, did this cross your mind? Hated by all for His namesake, even by your parents or your own children. The hour is coming when whoever kills you will think He is offering service to God. John 16.1 Jesus was killed as a blasphemer by the Jews, as an enemy of the state by Rome. And you won't ever suffer because you're a Christian. Right? You're never going to find yourself if you do in a court. No believer ever has and said, you are going to uh, be sentenced because you're a faithful Christian. No, that's not what you find. Early believers in Rome were marked and persecuted as atheists. As atheists. Do you know why? Because they said there is one God... Jesus is His name, and we will not acknowledge the gods of Rome. No, you deny all of the gods, and you're an atheist, and that's a capital crime in the Roman Empire. Not worshiping the gods of the age. 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be Persecuted. You want to you live a godly life? You want to follow after Christ? You will be persecuted. Not loved. Right? People aren't going to flock to you asking you what's different about you. They are going to come with scorn and with stones. You say, well, what if, what, what if God gives me wisdom? And I can, I can answer every question they have so that they can't resist. Stephen did that. And what if a miracle comes from heaven so that my face shines with the glory of God like an angel? Stephen did that. And he was the first martyr of the church. It says his face shone like an angel. He had wisdom that none could resist. But because men hate darkness rather than light, they stoned him to death. you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Insulted, being insulted for the name of Christ means that the Spirit of God and of glory rests on you. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, 
provided we suffer with Him so that we may be glorified with Him. I count the sufferings of this present time unworthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed. Romans 8.16 You know one of the ways you know the Spirit is in you? You suffer with Christ. No suffering in this life. No glorification. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord or of me, His prisoner. Paul speaking to Timothy. But share in suffering for the Gospel, for the power of God. 2 Timothy 1.8. Acts 5.41 They left the presence of the council, Peter and John, rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to be shamed for the name. If you're ashamed for Christ, rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. Romans 5, 3 and 5. More than that, we rejoice in our suffering. We rejoice not in spite of, as though we have a hope over here that is, that is uh, different than our sufferings, but our sufferings themselves, we rejoice in them, not in spite of them. Sometimes we look at our sufferings and say, yes, I'm having a really hard time. I am suffering terribly, but I have a hope that is outside of my suffering, unrelated, that's going to get me through. That's not what it says. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that the suffering itself produces endurance, and the endurance brought on by suffering produces character, and the character that you can trace all the way back to suffering produces hope, and hope will not be put to shame. We know what our sufferings are producing, endurance and character and hope, and that's what suffering does like to, uh, to the believer. It refines them like gold. And so we can rejoice saying, this is making me more like Jesus. Same thing in James 1, 2-4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You want to be holy? You want to be complete? It only comes one way. Rejoicing in trials of various kinds. Psalm 119.67 Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Philippians 3.10 that I might know Him and the power of His resurrection, this is Paul's prayer, and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. When was the last time you prayed, Lord, I want to know You and Your power and Your resurrection and share in Your sufferings and become like You in Your death? If you want to be like Christ, you pray this way. Matthew 10.16 Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Nobody wonders what happens to sheep in the midst of wolves. And that's where Jesus sends you. Matthew 18, or Matthew 10.7-18 Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts, and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake 
to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Listen to this verse because this verse doesn't mean if you are a faithful witness, you might end up in court, right? Because that's what we think. If I am faithful, if I'm evangelizing, if I'm doing these things, then I might end up in a trial. That's not what the passage says. The passage says the reason you're captured and beaten and thrown in jail and put on trial is not because you were bearing witness, but so that you can bear witness to your persecutors. It's not I'm witnessed, I I witnessed so I'm suffering. It's I am suffering so that I will have an audience to witness to. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness to them. Sometimes God will bring trials into your life so that you will have the opportunity to share the gospel and bear witness to others, not the other way around, which is what it means to fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Colossians 1, 24, it says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Paul says, I rejoice. It is my pleasure to suffer for the sake of the bride of Christ. It reminds me of a story of, uh, of a man in India. He, he had just become a believer. And he said, I'm going to go back and, and, uh, and tell my village of the wonders of Christ. It was a a long, long journey back to his village and he walked the whole way and he expected there to to get in there and be received with joy. And he walks into uh, into the village and he begins to preach Christ and they mock him and they throw dirt and garbage and feces at him and they chase him out of town. And so he's distraught and he leaves and he goes and he sits down under a tree. Falls asleep. And when he wakes up, the whole village is around him now And the village comes, and when they see him, they ask him to forgive them. And they say, we we didn't like what you were saying, so we drove you away. But then we came out of the village to see you, and when we saw your feet and how blistered and torn they were, we knew that you must have had an important message. He rejoiced in his sufferings, because by his sufferings he had an audience with his village. Don't think the Lord doesn't work that way. He does. And it's gracious in His sight. Colossians, or, uh, 1 Peter 3.17 For it is better to suffer for doing good. Do you think about that? It is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Why is it better? Because Christ suffered for doing good and it was God's will. And so God's will is that you suffer sometimes. Not for evil and not for inactivity, but you are suffering because you are doing good. And if a believer suffers for doing good, they're suffering like Christ and those who came before Him. So don't get mad about it. God is at work in wonderful painful ways. So, 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised. 
Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. It's not strange. It's not unusual for the Christian to be burned by fiery trials. Don't be surprised when they come. That's why Jesus says, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He says, I tell you these things so that when they come, you won't fall away. Don't be surprised when they come. If you know something is going to happen, it's not going to knock you off your feet. You're going to be ready for it. He just says, don't be surprised, beloved, when fiery trials come upon you to test you. It's not strange. It's normal for the Christian. But rejoice. How many times have you heard so far suffering and rejoicing put together in Holy Scripture? Over and over and over again. It's the last place our mind goes when we think of suffering. It's the first place the Bible wants our minds to go when we think of suffering. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering so that you might also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Our suffering and trials ought to be the same kind of, uh, we ought to have the same kind of rejoicing that we will have when the heavens open and Christ returns. Rejoice. Don't be, don't be shocked. Don't hang your head. Don't lament every fiery dart launched against you. God turns it into an opportunity for rejoicing. Right? Because He's, He is doing something in your life. He's conforming you to the image of God. There's, there's a lot of words in the Bible that let us know we're going to suffer. There's a lot of promises in the Bible that let us know why we can rejoice. He's refining you like gold. You're struggling against a certain sin. You want to put that sin away. Fiery trials might burn it up. He's pruning off dead branches that don't yield any fruit. He's administrating medicine or lancing the wound that needs to be drained. He's storing up treasures for you in heaven so that everything you lose in suffering cannot compare to what is gained. What you lose is temporary. What you gain is eternal. And what is 40 years, 70 years of loss? When all of that loss is translated into an eternity of treasures that cannot be destroyed or rust or eaten away. So verse 14, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, listen, you're insulted because you're a Christian, maybe by a coworker, by a family member, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Suffering for Jesus is a confirmation that you are really his. And for some of you who struggle with assurance, you wrestle with this, do I really belong to him? A few days' persecution for His namesake would be a greater blessing than you could ever imagine. I mean, what would you trade? What would you trade to uh, have an unshakable confidence that you belong to Him? A few days' discomfort's a small price to pay if it would purchase for you a greater assurance of His love and His forgiveness. Every ounce of suffering God is preaching to you suffering for his namesake God is screaming from heaven to you you are mine you are mine verse 15 but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief 
or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Don't suffer for doing what is wrong. Yet if someone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him give glory, uh, let him glorify God in that name. When you suffer, give glory to God. We are thankful for the cross. We are thankful for the instrument that our Savior was crucified on. We rejoice because God offered His Son as a sacrifice for sins. That's painful. And if we rejoice in that, and that's a center of what it means to follow Christ, then we can rejoice in a little bit of suffering. As Charles Simeon said, we, we, we must not, he said, brothers, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, verse 19, let those who suffer according to God's will. And what is suffering according to God's will? Suffering for doing what is good, not what is evil. So if you, are, if you have done good and you are suffering on account of it, if you have been faithful and you are suffering on account of it, you are suffering according to God's will. And if you're doing that, entrust your souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. So how do you suffer well? Two things. Entrust yourself to God and do good. Entrust yourself to Him because he is, he is sovereign and He's working in you and He's working at you and He's working for you. And any wound that you suffer comes from His hand. And it's for your good and for His glory. So you don't need to lament or complain or be afraid. God is doing something and whatever it might look like in the short term, your suffering is never meaningless. Ever. It's never in vain. You never have to say, oh, what's the point of all this misery? Because even if you do not see it, God is there at work for your good. In the New Covenant, he says, uh, when he makes a new covenant with us in, in Jeremiah, he says, and I will never stop doing good to them. That's a promise. And you can hold on to that no matter what happens in this life. God has assured you, and he cannot lie. And he tells us when you're suffering to do good, because it's really easy to grow weary in doing good when you are in pain because of it. When you do good to someone and they spurn it, they don't want it, and you try to do something good and they come along and they push it back in your face and they don't like it, really easy in that moment what for us to do? Say, oh, fine, you don't like it, fine. No more for me. Right? You want to be my enemy? Then I'll be your enemy. Do not grow weary of doing good. Repay ingratitude with kindness and goodness. And then you will be responding like your Father in heaven who makes the rain to fall down on the righteous and the unrighteous and on the just and the unjust. Entrust your soul to a faithful Creator and do not stop 
doing good and you will glorify God and be able to rejoice in your sufferings. 1 Peter 5.10 Now after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That little while that Peter is referring to is from the moment you're born till the moment that you die. A little while compared to the eternal grace that we have been called into, the eternal glory that awaits us. And He will restore. Everything lost will be paid back a hundredfold. He will confirm Vindication, you were right all along in following Him. He will strengthen. You'll never falter again. And He will establish, never be moved. This is what awaits those who after suffering a little while enter into the heavenly places. Psalm 119.71 It is good for me that I was afflicted was the last time you said that. It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes, that I might learn your law and your ways, that I might learn obedience. The psalmist says, everything I have been afflicted by, I thank you for, because it has made me wiser and made me more like Christ. This is where we need to be if we want to be Christians. It was good for me to be afflicted because I gained far more than I lost. Listen, this will turn all of your trials completely on their heads. Right? When you face trials of various kinds, bad bosses, difficult family relationships, economic downturn, tyrannical governments, the likes of which nobody in this country has ever seen, Mockery from the world, mockery from the media, misrepresentation, persecution, being lied about falsely, losing your job, being a second-class citizen for the sake of Christ, which many Christians have had to endure throughout history, losing your rights, paying higher taxes, economic oppression, occupational doors closing, right? You're a Christian, oh, well, you're not going to be a lawyer anymore. You're a Christian, you want to be a doctor? No way. We're just about there. Hatred from your own family or loss of a child, sickness, cancer, death. All of them, Christian, are opportunities to rejoice. Not because they feel good and not because of what you see. They don't feel good and they don't look good. And not because you're tough and you can handle it but because you know that God is at work in them doing something. Now, if you want to memorize any verse, and you all should, go home after this, memorize 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. How is this as a word for those who are growing older and can feel their bodies deteriorating? 
The outer self is wasting away, but the inner self is being renewed day by day. Your soul does not grow old. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Not a tear falls to the ground and not a second of pain is wasted. Not a sickness is endured in vain. Not a loved one is lost. That for the Christian is not light and momentary. Because God is using that to prepare you for an eternal weight of glory so great that it cannot be compared to the affliction that brought the glory about. Doesn't compare. Cancer that's terminal looks like a small thing when all it's going to do is usher you into glory. So you want to show the world the glory of God? Suffer like His Son. Suffer according to the promises. Suffer knowing that the trials you endure aren't random. They come from God. They're working for your good, our eternal good. If they weren't for our good, God wouldn't give them. If it wasn't for your good, God would not allow you to endure it. And even when you, when you look at it, you've got to preach to yourself, this doesn't look good. I don't enjoy what I'm seeing. I do not see, I cannot conceive how this present trial could ever have any benefit to me. And then you believe by faith the promises of God and say to yourself, Lord, you have said you will never stop doing good to your children. You have said all things work for good for those who love you. You've warned me about these things. You've told me I can rejoice in my sufferings. That this is an opportunity to give glory to you. And I'm going to believe what you say. I'm going to believe in the things that aren't seen rather than the things my eyes perceive. And we need to get to that place where Eternity is more real to us and the promises of God weigh heavier on us and influence us more than our present circumstances and present trials. Which is called living by faith and not by sight. I want to end with a word of caution. There is a temptation sometimes as a Christian to think that we are the only ones who suffer. The rest of the world just goes on its way carefree. This isn't true. In fact, it could not be further from the truth. And the reason I bring this up is it's, it's easy for Christians to almost get a kind of persecution complex where we're the only ones who suffer, everyone else has a good. Listen, people who are not Christians suffer. And oftentimes they suffer a lot worse than you do. Because everyone is going to suffer. I mean, life in a fallen world, life in general, is hard at the best of times. Just think of your unbelieving neighbor or your co-worker. Their level of pain and affliction and trial in this life probably isn't too much different than yours. In fact, if anything, it's worse. It's higher. Right? You have a place of refuge. 
You have the ear of God. You have a wise way to live that will spare you from many of the difficulties inflicted on people in this world. You have a a better way. You have immense and unshakable promises. What does your neighbor who doesn't know Christ have? What? He endures the same thing. When a neighborhood floods, everyone's house gets wet. Not just the Christians. When a famine strikes the land, everyone gets hungry. What does your unbelieving co-worker have? A baseless hope that ends in hell? Maybe things will get better, maybe they won't, but no matter what happens, I'm damned. Your your suffering is meaningful and ends in deliverance and joy. If you're not a Christian, what hope do you have? The best end for those outside of Christ, the best, worm food. You die and go in the grave and your problems go away. That's what they think. It's not reality. And even in this life, will things get better? You don't know. Can you rejoice in your sufferings? That's ridiculous. How can an unbeliever rejoice in their sufferings? Trials take away everything that they have to live for. Right? If you're a believer and you get cancer, it's like I said, what's that going to do? It's terminal. You have a month left to live. Praise the Lord, I'm on my way to glory. You're not a believer. Everything you have to live for is being taken away. And every hope you can cling to is like, it's like trying to hold on to water. You squeeze it in your hand and you've got nothing left. There is no hope for those outside of Christ. Just delusions and fantasies. The reason I bring this up is we ought to have pity as believers on those who suffer. And not just pity on ourselves. In fact, self-pity and suffering is, is opposite to what the Scripture says. Rejoice and give glory to God in sufferings. Is not pity yourself for what you have to endure. But we have a lot of reason to pity those outside of Christ. And this ought to encourage us to go to them with the gospel and hold out hope to them in their suffering. And all of those who surrender to Christ, to everyone who does come to Him, they can rejoice in their sufferings. Because now all all of the sure and unchangeable promises of God belong to them. And if you're here or you're joining us online, you're listening and you haven't put your trust in Christ and you haven't given your life to Him, you don't have any reason to rejoice in your sufferings. You don't. All they're going to end is with eternal suffering in hell. And I don't say this to scare you. I say this because it's true. But the Lord has also promised all who are weary and heavy laden If you come to Him, He'll take that burden off of you. And no, your suffering won't go away, but the God of heaven and of glory will be with you in it. And you will, by His strength, be able to rejoice in your sufferings. So if you haven't put your trust in Him and given your life to Him, make things right with Him today. Surrender to Christ 
and ask Him to have mercy on a sinner like you. Not to avoid suffering, but to endure it because Christ is worthy of it all. And because Christ has endured the greatest suffering for all of those who come to Him. If you don't know Him, don't let the sun set tonight without making things right with Christ. He is open to receive you. The heavens will have you. If you're here listening, it's here because He's called you to hear. He wants you to come. And there's no reason in the world to prevent you from entering into that relationship with Christ and putting your old life behind you and saying, Lord, whatever may come, Whatever trials it may bring, I will walk with you because you are worthy of my life. It's the heart of all of those who come to Him. And I pray it would be the same for you. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray for your church that you would strengthen them in suffering. That they would know that they can rejoice in it because you are at work. Thank you that our pain isn't wasted. Thank You that You have stored up our tears in Your bottle. And not a single one falls to the ground that You don't see. Lord, You are with us in our trials. You are with us in difficulties. You are with us in pain. Whether it's an insult or an accident and everywhere in between, Lord, blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Blessed. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, that our lives do not end in suffering. But for every believer, our trials are storing up for us riches in heaven. They are deposits into an eternal bank account that cannot be broken into. Thieves cannot come and steal. Moths cannot eat. Rust cannot destroy. Help us, God, to believe it. And give us the faith to live not by what we see and not by what we feel and not by what we perceive, but help us to take the long view, the eternal view, that we can say with Paul, I do not count these light and momentary afflictions as worthy to be compared to the eternal weight of glory awaiting those who are in Christ Jesus. Help us to see this life as transient that we're only passing through. Help us to see this life as light and momentary. We may only do it by faith, Lord. I pray you would increase our faith. And I pray for anyone who does not know you, that they would see the joy of being in Christ and that your kindness would lead them to salvation. That they would surrender their lives to you. That they would forsake their sin. They would look at their old lives and turn from them and turn to you, God. They would say like the man in the temple, the tax collector, Oh God, have mercy on a sinner like me. Lord, a contrite and broken heart, you will in no way turn away. I pray for anyone who has a broken and contrite heart this morning that they would come to you 
and be saved and know the joy of your salvation. And that, Lord, we may know you in your sufferings for our good and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.